This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to episode three of John Richardson and the Future Notes. I am John Richardson and I'm joined by the Future Notes, who are Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Hello. Uh, how are you both? Who's had the most uh, eventful week? Well, it depends if you, if you consider slugs eventful. Oh, of course. Yeah, we also had a kind of a visit from a feral fox downstairs. Uh, my neighbour Tom left his back door open and uh, a, a fox came in, stole his flip-flop off the kitchen floor, proceeded onto the flat roof outside and started to eat it. Tom spotted him, so went out to shoo him away and the fox just sat there staring him out whilst eating his flip-flop in front of him. <laughs> and, okay, uh, fair enough. It was stared down, stared down by the fox. And then the next day, the fox came back and took the other one. I said, I saw the fox out on the roof earlier. He's eating something. I couldn't work out what it was. And uh, it's only later we found out, yeah, it was it was Tom's flip-flop. So we've now christened the fox Flip. That is a fox. I mean, if you try and chase that fox down and it's staring you out, what that fox is saying is, what are you going to do to me? I'm eating yeah. your shoe. How much worse <laughs> do you think my life can get? <laughs> I broke into your house and I'm eating a flip-flop. So you yeah. do it, mate. <laughs> Um, well, I've had my first lockdown haircut. That's what's happened here. Uh, Lucy cut my hair in the dog and bastard, and I haven't hoovered up yet, so I'm currently surrounded by uh, shavings as we record this podcast. So if anyone walks in now, it looks like I've just been sort of tearing my hair out and just throwing it on the floor. <laughs> Mark, um, any haircuts or foxes eating your shoes? Uh, I have had quite an eventful week. Um, I've just been appointed to do something that I can't tell you about because it's top secret, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful anecdote. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, no, it's 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 really big. It's a big climate change thing that um, that I can't talk about, but I will be able to talk about in May. So um, yes, I've had an eventful week. Watch this space. Excellent. I mean, I, I, I'm glad for you, and I'm glad for the climate. It's obviously a positive thing for that. For the podcast, frankly, I'd <laughs> rather you'd lost a job that you could talk about then gained a job that you couldn't. It's just a better anecdote. Um, We are about to delve into our mailbag. We've had a number of uh, emails and tweets, some quicker than others and easier for you to deal with. So uh, here's uh, a tweet that came from Sally and said, Hi, could you guys please cover the potential for carbon capture from ecosystem restoration slash regeneration? Yes. Okay. We're not going to do it this episode, Sally, but certainly the immense power of using natural climate solutions to help us turn around climate change is a, is a huge topic. And we talked, touched on it a bit last week with food and how you can change agriculture to sequester carbon, but it's a big topic. We'll definitely come back to that. Yes, Sally, we will. Uh, excitingly, we've had a, a Sarah has emailed in as well. She has a suggestion for a pointless future. Uh, so we'll get to ours at the end. But she uh, has suggested the iPotty uh, as a pointless future. And she sent a picture of it. It's a potty with an iPad strapped to the front of it. So <laughs> I don't know what other sort of tech enablements it has. Uh, she says it's called the iPotty. It's sort of self-explanatory. As much as I love my two-year-old to be fully toilet trained, conditioning them to only be able to go to the toilet watching an episode of Paw Patrol does potentially <laughs> open them up to some strange habits and behaviours later in life. Um, yeah, not not ideal, is it? That's fantastic. I mean, it, who thinks of this shit? Uh, so thank you for all your tweets and emails. You can reach us on the usual channels and the details are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at John, J-O-N, and the future notes, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. 
So we move on to uh, this week's episode. This week we are discussing work, and while it's opposite, we have had an email which is about work. And again, it's a question for you two. I don't think I'm really invited to offer an opinion. Uh, It's from Jonathan, who says, Would you recommend implementing a profoundly important idea for the democratization of the building and provision of housing across the globe uh, (laughs) from the most vulnerable up with the obvious might of one of the tech giants? Should I shake hands with the devil? Um, two different questions there, I think. <laughs> but I think what he's saying is, without any details of what my project is or who I'm working with, would you two, complete strangers, tell me whether or not I should do it? <laughs> tough, tough call. Well, I mean, I think should I shake hands with the devil is a bit of a you know a lead, isn't it? Really, mm. I mean, in my experience, if I were with the devil, and he proffered his hand with potentially a deal, I might, having read a little bit of mythology and, you know, and theology, probably look back on that and go, I'm not sure this is going to be as benign as you're telling me it, given that you are the devil. The devil, yeah. Um, but I think I think to get us into this week's episode, that whole social contract between the idea that he's basically saying that a large corporation is almost by definition devilish gets us into what I think what we want to talk about, which is that social contract and what works for and why we do it, what's broken about it and how we can fix it. So um, it's a nice end to the show, but we're not giving free career advice. Okay. So uh, basically, Jonathan, cough up is the advice there. Ed, do you want to say a yay or nay? Or do you want the dollar like Mark? No, I'm going to say, I think... I go back to the quote from UK environmentalist uh, Jonathan Porritt, who always used to say, we all sup with the devil, just some of us choose to use a very long spoon. Um, so I think in, in many ways it's about degrees of separation. Be careful about uh, satanic handshakes. I don't think it works. There's a few blues singers out there who tell you how it all went horribly wrong. So uh, we're discussing work. We're discussing it now, still under lockdown. So I think a lot of people are thinking about their jobs how transferable their jobs are to home, how efficient they are. We set the bar as how fucked are we? Is the current work market a, a particular problem for you two? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, the, the the even before this crisis, you know, we had what we call what I call the social contract was actually completely broken. You know, and this goes back to a French geezer, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1762, who was talking about the purpose of work and the rights of men and women to actually have meaningful work. And also in that particular instance, access to land. You know, the social contract is supposed to be this deal that we have between us and and the provision of our labor or services, that our employers uh, and the state and society. And when that functions, we should all have meaningful work. We should all be able to earn enough money to make sure the essentials in life are being met. Uh, and we have a functioning social and economic safety net that looks after those who might drop out of that particular system. And all of that, unfortunately, has fallen apart uh, to a greater or lesser extent in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, in the first episode, we, I mentioned that statistics of 85% of people are disengaged from their work. And um, that comes from a report that Gallup do every couple of years called the State of the Global Workplace. And what they say is that only 15% of people are actually enthusiastic about the work they do. Two thirds are just not engaged and 18% are actively disengaged. And that means that 18% of employees in most in, in most organizations literally are trying to sabotage that organization. And you think about what that says about how broken things are, where the job you provide is such that 20% of people actually want to kill you and another two thirds just don't give a shit. There's something very fundamentally wrong with that contract going forward. And I think it's down to this thing we often talk about, which is a lack of purpose, a lack of valuing the whole human, the idea that your salary is now bribery, not reward. Because, you know, as we've seen with the crisis, the things we've been valuing and the things we've been rewarding have been entirely the wrong things. Is this a global problem then? Or is it a Western problem? Or is it a British problem? No, it's a global problem. I mean, Gallup did this survey in 155 countries. And actually, if you go to Asia, where you have much more traditional hierarchies in businesses, you know, that very top down, you do what I say, you know, deference and respect. Actual active engagement there isn't 15%, it's six. So it's even worse in some uh, nations because of the culture of how people think about work and responsibility and all that kind of stuff. So it's a it's a global problem. It's not good anywhere. Yeah, and it's also I think it's also this the kind of the share of the spoils from the system that's really been 
robbed essentially over the last uh, 20 or 30 years as well. I mean, you look at kind of something like CEO compensation, which has grown about a thousand percent since 1978. So, you know, the amount of money that's being taken off by the people at the top has dramatically increased. If you want to compare that to, say, frontline workers at the moment. So the average FTSE 100 CEO gets paid a hundred times more than the living wage and and about 165 times a nurse 140 times what a teacher gets and 130 times what a police officer gets and the extraordinary thing is it's not just that comparison between individuals and individual jobs it's actually the wage share of gdp the amount of turnover in the economy has also gone down from 60% in the 60s to about 50% now which is a huge drop you know it's about 15% of that revenue that it's not no longer going to the wage earners themselves, but it's going to shareholders and other owners in a rentier economy. So how did that start? Has that been a gradual process? Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where you see it just being chipped, chipped, chipped away. You know, and, and I think partly this comes back to narrative, the story we tell ourselves. You know, and we've had this sort of huge inflation in executive reward and executive pay, which has become completely disconnected from reality and also completely disconnected from the actual ability of those people to produce value. Uh, you know, when you've got a, an exec who is making more in minutes, literally, than someone who's making on living wage in a year, then you clearly have something something that's gone horribly awry. Yeah, I mean, the people at the top have got this narrative that they're the people who do the important jobs and, you know, run these big organisations. Therefore, they need to be rewarded handsomely. And as, as we're discovering at the moment, you know, they're, they're fairly useless, some of them. It's very depressing. What's it like for comedians? Have wages gone up or are they stagnating? Fascinatingly, the, the money for comedy is the same as it was at club level in the sort of 1990s, you know, so the, the money you would get for doing a weekend, say, at the comedy store, probably in the early 90s, is the same, if not more, than it is now. It's it's gone down in some clubs. And is that because the quality of the comedy has got worse or there's more comedians? Is it a supply thing or is it or there is some comedy fat cats sort of creaming it off? Well, there's definitely been a, a, a sort of move away from the circuit in the sense of, you know, what the, the aim of the job is, um, not to become... You know, my ambition was only ever to be a successful circuit comedian and to pay my bills doing comedy and everything else is sort of a bonus. But now most people start to get to the elevated levels of telly and things like that. So the circuit has struggled. Uh, There are more clubs, there are more comedians. And, you know, the point you make about people's salaries not going up, you know, most people their disposable income has gone down so they don't go out as much to comedy clubs. And at the moment, I think the clubs are in a real mess. And there's a lot of comedians at the moment struggling uh, because of lockdown. But who do you prioritise in this situation? You know, which workers do you say, right, well, these are the ones we've got to help first and foremost. Then we come for the comics. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I was hoping that, you know, by asking that question, there'd be a lot of rich comedy there, but you've given us a very serious and very unfunny answer, John. Well, I'm just aware. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is I don't sort of feel like a comedian anymore. I feel like a sort of TV gobshite. And so when people say, what's it like for comedians? I picture most comedians saying, oh, you're going to fucking tell me what it's like for me, are you? Um, You know. I'm sat in a pub that is in my garage. So, you know, I can't really speak for anyone. I feel uh, there's a sort of discomfort that I feel like I'm one of the CEOs in your story. I'm someone who gets paid far more than they should for their job. And I'm probably part of the problem. That's what I feel like. I feel like I'm being attacked, actually, Mark. <laughs> um, so tell me who to give all my money to. So interestingly, this, this leads on to the story of Daniel Price, who is a CEO. And he was earning about a million pounds a year running a small sort of software financial company. And he went out for a run with a friend of his who uh, I think had been in the army and had worked in you know medicine or something like that. And somebody he described as somebody who was, you know, uh, her whole life was about service and doing the right thing and being socially responsible and, and helping others. And she was struggling to pay the rent. And he sort of realized through that conversation that he was part of the problem. You know, how is it that she's, she's struggling to pay the rent and I'm being rewarded ridiculously? So he... So pretty much the next day, went back to his organisation and he put everybody on seventy thousand dollars, including himself. So he took a massive pay cut, and everybody from the the people in the post room up were on a minimum wage of seventy grand. And he says it's the best thing he's ever done for his company. And he's still doing it now. Yeah, absolutely. And what effect is he seeing? Well, I mean, he's got a very dedicated, very loyal staff, and he also says I'm far, far happier. 
because mm. there is this uh, lie that goes on that, that you know you, you get money and you become rich and when you become rich everything becomes easy and you become successful and as we all know it's a false contract um, um, right off and this is why actually you know uh, because it's there's such a false contract in the average working day average employee is actually productive for about three hours because they just don't want to be there. They're spending their time reading news websites, checking social media, uh, making hot drinks, texting, eating snacks. This all comes from a, a study that was done. So it's kind of, you know, we don't want to be there. When we are there, we're not working. There's a massive productivity loss to everybody because those workers aren't working and, and, and they're miserable. You know, the whole thing is completely broken. And most of us recognise that. Most of us recognise that our salaries are bribery, not reward. It also gets weirder as well, doesn't it? Because then we talk about productivity uh, and you're getting wanting to get productivity up. But the fact is, if you've got a massively unsustainable economic system and you increase the productivity, you actually accelerate the pace at which you get to oblivion. <laughs> and so it's like we want to put more wax on the tracks, uh, more grease on the wheels in order to get to Armageddon faster. Now, I have questions going back to Daniel Price. I have two main questions. One is the sort of wage structure of everyone being on 70 grand. Do we not have this inbuilt idea that certain jobs become more pressured and more stressful and there you get more money to do those jobs? If you were in a company where you knew you could get the same salary for doing a less stressful part of the work, would you not do that? And would that not lead to resentment within the company of, well, if we're all on the same, then I'll just do that because that looks easier than what I'm doing. Well, I think what this does is it's a great leveller in that anybody who starts to shirk or isn't pulling their weight is very quickly pulled up because it becomes more about the team. It's like, well, if we're all on the same and you're coasting, this is problematic for me. So I think actually it, it doesn't do that at all. And also, you know, what you might find really easy, someone else might, might find really difficult. So there's a, uh, you know, you're doing that job over there because you're really good at it, uh, but I could never do that job, but I can do this job over here. So what to you looks easy is actually quite hard, and that's why I'm doing this one and, and so on. So I think it actually levels things out as far as we can work out. And when you have much more egalitarian wage structures, people tend not to take the piss so much. I think that's the interesting bit because, you know, if you look, like we say, we've looked at the Equality Trust stuff where you've got, you know, a, a FTSE 100 CEO earning 100 times more than the person on the living wage. Now, clearly, there's an order of magnitude issue there. And I know some of the more progressive companies, even if they don't go for full egalitarianism, where everyone on the same salary, at least um, aiming for factor four. Ben and Jerry's, they are, you know, the ice cream company used to say this. They wanted to, to aim for factor seven. So the, the CEO could earn seven times more than the lowest paid in the company, but no more than that, you know. And I think they actually got to about factor 10. But, you know, the reality is we're at factor 100. So that's why that ratio has to be turned down. Because apart from anything else, you know, when you're, if you're earning 70,000 a year, you don't get much happier when you earn more than that. You know, because you become more stressed, more overworked, you have less time, you have more commitments. So all of the things that you're supposed to be enjoying are actually compromised by the additional burden being placed upon you. Well, this leads me on to what, what was going to be my second question about that model is is it sort of began when he went for a run with a colleague who, who was struggling to pay their bills. How does that happen? How these CEOs, I mean, obviously there's there's an easy answer that they're just, they're evil and they're greedy and they want all that money. But is there, there must be some understanding that they know. I mean, I, my mum sent me a video this week of the Spanish, uh, the fruit pickers and the migrant workers in southern Spain who pick all our tomatoes and peppers and aren't getting paid the minimum wage in Spain. And, you know, when questioned about it, these people just close up. They don't allow the journalists in. They don't answer the questions. They they refute the allegations. They just say we are paying the minimum wage when they're not. These seem like quite easy things legally to sort out. And morally, people should know what they're paying their staff and whether it's enough. Yeah, but I think the, the question that comes from that is quite, actually quite a sort of soulful one in some ways because it feeds into this idea that, you know, you're only uh, useful in work in terms of the economic value you produce. And clearly, you know, when we look at frontline workers and key workers at the moment, we know that's not necessarily the case. But also, it plays into that language of, hum you know, the horrible deathless language of human resources uh, and the fact that employees are seen as costs on a balance sheet. You know, so when we get into difficulties like we're in in this crisis, the first thing to do is someone in finance or in someone at the senior level is basically drawing a red line through people's lives on that balance sheet in order to reduce their costs. Now, that's a completely twisted way of looking at it. And I think we've we've drifted a long way back 
from where we used to have this social contract, as we were discussing at the beginning, where it's about a mutual respect and responsibility. Joseph Roundtree, you know, the founder of the the chocolate factory, back in the day used to say the role of employment is to allow employees to reach their full potential. You know, and it was very much seen as like that will be partly through your work and all of the philanthro capitalists like the Lever brothers and the Cadbury's family in Bourneville saw that kind of development opportunity. They wanted to educate their staff. They wanted to improve their staff. They wanted their employees to have better lives. And you take that in the kind of stark sense that we see people now where it's like the gig economy, zero hours contracts. And if you're not being productive on tiny little cycles of time and timesheets, if you're in an Amazon factory where you can't even go for a toilet break without being scrutinized, you know, how far have we gone from Roundtree's original vision? Yeah, and it makes no business sense either. So there was a, some study done by Harvest Business School and, and London Business School that companies that sort of embrace better and more enlightened work practices that also embrace sustainability and stuff like that. So they're thinking progressively about their relationship and that social contract and the contract with the environment. Um, they just outperform in terms of making money and making profit, both in terms of accounting performance, the amount of money they actually make, you know, profit they make, but also stock market performance, the, the, their share price. So they actually did an analysis over sort of 20 years. And they said, if you'd invested a, a dollar in companies that take this stuff seriously and are good corporate citizens, or you're taking a dollar and invest it in sort of, you know, your run of the mill company, well, actually, you'd have made 47% more investing in the companies that do the right thing anyway. Because those companies, they manage risk better, they've got more loyal staff, they've got more engaged staff. Staff. So it doesn't make, even make any business sense. So this whole narrative is not only bad for workers, it's actually bad for, for business people and entrepreneurs and investors as well. So how is that perpetuating then? Because my understanding of these people is they are driven purely by bottom lines and productivity and spreadsheets. And if you're saying there's not only firsthand evidence from people like Daniel Price who are doing it that say it's a good thing, but there's also a wealth of evidence to say that it's more efficient and makes you more money. Why doesn't it happen? Well, I have an. I think I have an answer to this, and I think it's the idea of exceptionalism. So, if you look at how you get on in work, in most organisations you get promoted, right? And the very idea of being promoted is you, you're suddenly valued as somehow better than the people who are now at a lower grade than you. You have power over them, and so what that tends to do, that whole system, is as you get further and further up there, you are told to think you are better and better and better than the people below you, more skilled or more whatever, and so that's why you get so many CEOs that are actually simply psychopathic to a certain degree because they've got this narrative that I am brilliant and I am fantastic and everybody else is somehow lesser than me. So it's the narrative of what success is. Having worked with many CEOs, and Ed will say this as well, there are some of them you just think, my God, you know, this is horrific because you literally think that the people below you are in fact below you rather than thinking of it as a team where everybody has their thing to bring and uh, some, some people have a life outside of work which they're not allowed to sort of bring into it so i think it's all about the people who have succeeded at this literally believe that they are better and therefore they deserve the rewards and the people below them are not as worthy and not as worthwhile and therefore they only deserve slim pickings. Yeah, the other thing there is that actually the, the rate of psychopathy in our corporate leaders is about double the ambient rate in the rest of the population. So there is also something about the way we select for, for some talent uh, in organisations which actually fosters some of these slightly emotionally disconnected type of personalities and characters. Well, thank God I'm in an industry that is just full of perfectly well-balanced and sensible people. <laughs> in the performing arts, which you are a member, John, mm-hmm. would, you, would you say that people who rise to the top, a lot of them are slightly psychopathic? Um, I think so, yes. I think there's a... Good care to name names? <laughs> well, I think it's most of them. So, you know, <laughs> it's less of a sort of financial argument with me, but it goes back to what you were saying about you don't necessarily get happier the more you earn. And I think a lot of comics think the more their career progresses, the happier they'll be. And that just isn't the case. I don't think, you know, getting on telly or playing bigger venues or any of the things that we consider the progressional points if you're not addressing your your wider life and why you're doing things and what the purpose of your job is, i.e. to make people laugh, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You won't get happier just because you've done the O2 as opposed to some of the theatres on my tour, uh, which is <laughs> on sale now, but not happening for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, John, you do strike me as somebody who has got very successful and actually seems quite happy 
in in a career where you've just said a lot of people aren't very happy. So um, I'd be really interested to know what your what your top tips are for dealing with success and not becoming a, a staggering arsehole. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if it's advice I would suggest everyone follow, but I recommend being massively unhappy uh, for most of your formative years and then having some counselling. Uh, and that, that really does the job. <laughs> Seek professional help um, if you're crying a lot. So the best thing that Ed and I can do for our children, indeed you for Elsie, is to make sure they have a thoroughly unhappy childhood and then give them the name of a psychotherapist. Really unhappy, but but into a job where they can channel that unhappiness into work. And comedy is a job where if you turn up at a theatre and you are the angriest and most unhappy person in the room, so long as you turn that into jokes the audience will find that greatly enjoyable because no one wants to pay to watch someone talk about how great their life is and how wonderful everything is. And that is a struggle comedians have. I think the further they go, the harder it is to um, sort of establish rapport with the audience because you can't, you're not doing the same things as them anymore because you've become famous and you're on telly. So you end up telling stories about how weird it was when you met Tom Cruise when it wasn't weird because you were in a film with him. So that's why you met him. Um, <laughs> people aren't fooled by it, but you, you know, you can't talk about being in the fish and chip shop anymore because people know you probably don't go to the fish and chip shop around the corner anyway. But to go back to your question, I think I genuinely believe my goal in becoming a comedian and I became a comedian having been at uni and done some jobs and being really unhappy because the work was unfulfilling. And I knew, you know, even in my early twenties, I I knew I can't do this job for the rest of my life because it's going to make me unhappy and there's no purpose to it. And I knew the thing I really want to do is comedy. So the minute I earned, I lived in a bedsit. I I think my rent was 260 pound a month and I knew I could live on like 400, you know, that would pay my rent and I could run my car. That was probably a similar level of happiness to what I have now in terms of the drive for the work. I paid my bills making people laugh at comedy clubs in Birmingham and Torquay and Plymouth, and that was enough for me. Now now I definitely have reduced stress now that I have a bit more money and I don't have to worry about bills. But, you know, in terms of the, the actual core happiness comes from that's how I pay my bills and I find that job fulfilling and I enjoy it. And that seems to be what you're talking about because we've talked about the money, it seems quite simple that obviously if CEOs paid more of their money to their workers, their workers would be happier and more productive. But is there, in this 85% of people being unhappy in their work, presumably it's more than just money. There is a fundamental unhappiness with most of the jobs people are doing. Yeah, and I think we're also in a position now where a third of the economy has disappeared, uh, you know, and and not everything has collapsed. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself that missing third where has it gone and did it really matter? I was listening to an interesting interview with John Ronson the other day. And he said, you know, if we're, if we're all choosing to live voluntarily or involuntarily more simple lives and the economy is broken as a result, then perhaps we should ask a bigger question about the economy. Yeah. I mean, I saw a tweet the other day. It said, um, isn't it amazing the economy collapses when people only buy what they need? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and also, but if you talk about productivity, you find if you work less, if you say to people actually don't work as much, they're more productive. And, and people may not realize this, but the original eight hour day was an innovation to reduce the amount of work people were doing. So in 1914, the Ford Motor Company cut daily working hours down from 16 or 10 hours to eight. Okay. So 16 to 10 hours was the norm in factories, sort of in the beginning of the 20th century. And Ford cut it down to eight which everybody thought was ridiculous. How are you be so productive? And he doubled wages simultaneously. And guess what happened? Ford Motor Company's productivity went through the roof. So actually, it seems the less we work, the more focused we are, the happier we are, the more profitable companies can be because they've got engaged employees who aren't actually being driven into the ground. And that's one of the things we can maybe do to unfuck ourselves is perhaps go to a four-day week. Not And people say, oh, God, what will happen to productivity? Well, the science says it'll go up. It's also a good example of the social contract because one of the reasons that Henry Ford did that was so his own employees could afford to buy the product. Yeah, as you said, like, it's, it's, it's of no use to me if the average man can't afford to buy my car. So... It's clear from that conversation that actually what you need to do is pay people more and work, ask them to work less. I mean, it sounds like an ideal situation, but the work itself still has to be good, doesn't it? I mean, I imagine the two of you have had some fairly shit jobs in the past. <laughs> I think it's an understatement of the century. Uh, so growing up in East Anglia in the in the like late 80s, early 90s, I had some quite extraordinary jobs with my stepfather's uh, contract cleaning company. Uh, so I, I scraped rust off the top of Sizewell B nuclear power station uh, during the construction <laughs> phase. 
This um, explains so much it, about you, Ed. It does, it does. And then we, uh, obviously East Anglia is the home of poultry farming. Uh, Bernard Matthews uh, turkey farms were a kind of rite of passage for most teenagers growing up in the Norfolk area. So I had another job which was sucking compacted turkey shit out of an Olympic swimming pool sized slurry pit, um, oh, which, God, which, which, which was great. So that was one of those kind of three showers to try and remove the smell uh, from your skin afterwards. And then the last one was actually vacuuming copper oxide dust, which they used to blast uh, the, the sharp metal edges off oil rig accommodation units after they've been welded together on the dock side in Lowestoft. And, uh, you know, so it's like nuclear power stations, turkey farms, slurry pits, and oil rig accommodation units. It's not really surprising why I became an environmentalist. Wow. Wow. did you, I mean, was there any satisfaction in those jobs because they were so awful, or was it just uh, brutal? It was. I think. I think. I think my mates and I at the time would look at each other and go, "These are the kind of jobs we will tell people we we ended up doing as teenagers because they were so horrific." I mean, weirdly, the money was quite good. You know, that was part of the reason we would do them because you know you got paid good money for doing thoroughly unpleasant things. Do you think that's changed? So if you were to do those jobs now, there was, you know, we were only talking maybe 30 years ago, but the sort of contract was, this is a shit unpleasant job, but is absolutely essential. So therefore, it's quite good money to do it. Do you feel like even in the last 30 years, that's changed to a point where now those jobs are probably, all you're doing is sucking shit out, so you don't get much money? Well, possibly. I remember I was 17. And so the only thing I was interested in spending my money on was probably beer. Uh, so, you know, when you don't have massive overheads at the age of 17, it wasn't like I was trying to make a living. This was basically entertainment money, I guess, at the time. Right. So good money to a 17-year-old who just wants something, a pound a pint, 50p a pint maybe back then. Three, three, <laughs> three, three oh, no, I was going to say, I remember 50p a pint. So I went, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean anything by it. But you started drinking about eight though, didn't you, John? So. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But that was paid work, you know, growing up in the North. Every pub had a pub kid and uh, you had to go in and just drink the drip tray. It was sort of similar to the turkey shit thing. <laughs> um, Mark, have you ever sucked turkey shit out of an industrial sized swimming pool? No, um, I have to I have to say um, very happily that I've not. Uh, worst jobs ever done, uh, this one. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also spent a fairly miserable time in Swindon as a systems analyst. So doing, doing computing stuff very pointlessly for a building society. Um, and that was, was pretty soul-destroying. But I think the worst job I ever had, actually, was when I got fairly successful in my boring corporate career, which I had for a tiny bit. Um, and uh, I ended up on, you know, being the marketing director of a boring financial services transaction company. And they you know, were showering me with share options and a pretty good salary and whatever. And um, I found it fascinating how they worked. But the thing that used to depress me was, you know, I would go into the boardroom and say things like, I think there's a real environmental angle on this that we can you know, bring up and actually, because you know, our product actually saved loads of carbon emissions. And I said, well, why don't we, why don't we sort of tell people about that? Because it's a good thing. And also let's not sell it to, to bastards. You know, let's not sell this product that actually makes businesses more efficient. Let, maybe we don't sell it to tobacco companies. You know, maybe we don't sell it to arms dealers or whatever. And um, what I found fascinating about that was they looked at me in the boardroom like I was some kind of, you know, hippie. But then, in private, every single member of that board of directors came to me and said, I agree with everything you're saying. And I found that quite depressing because it's about that narrative we're talking about. Everybody thinks they can't do the right thing because they think there's a social cost of doing it, whereas privately everybody thinks they should be doing the right thing. And I found that profoundly depressing. So I left and became a stand-up comedian for a year, which, as you know, John, is the best career in the world. Absolutely, for a year. But you've stopped, though. And can I commend you on behalf of all comedians for I stopping? Commending, I thought you were going to commend me because I was terrible. Can I commend you for stopping? Oh, uh, there are a great many people who are shit at comedy who don't stop and do something else. So hats <laughs> off and a round of applause for giving it a go and saying, I'm going to do something else now. But there's a point here, I think, which comes to our earlier conversation, which is about when people feel it's an attack on them, their personality or that who they are and who they see themselves as, then that's a kind of a psychological trauma rather than, say, just the physical one of doing, of doing say, difficult or backbreaking work. Well, that and goes I've, back to your point as well of, you know, when you asked about why there's a sort of psychopathy amongst people at the top level of that job, learning to disregard that and learning to have a thousand people not laugh when you're trying to make them laugh and you're telling them things that you think, that is, it should wound you and it should be, you know, 
painful and comedy is just learning to get over that and have another go and shedding that feeling of ah well bollocks i'll be in a different town tomorrow i think that makes you slightly invincible you know you just realize oh a, a really bad day for me is it's humiliating but i'll just go and do it again and you lose that oh god i hope that doesn't happen and in so doing you become a psychopath <laughs> <laughs> shall we move off our own uh jobs shall we discuss um how we unfuck ourselves then because the the you know the headline figures you've quoted of the the volume of people unhappy and the the wage uh discrepancy from top to bottom needs redressing and quickly are there systems in place that are doing that or starting to do that yeah no definitely and i think this is the whole idea of the renegotiation of the social contract you know the the thing that's supposed to serve and work for all of us i mean i think everyone has a reasonable expectation they should be have meaningful work a fair reward and be involved in something bigger than themselves and we see that fundamentally through this particular crisis. Uh, and the fact is, in order to do that, you need to keep more money circulating in the economy. and You need to have a more even distribution of the collective wealth that we've already accumulated. I often describe it as saying we're already rich beyond our wildest dreams. The trouble is, it's incredibly stratified where that wealth is. To be in the top 10% of earners in the country, you only need to be earning about 40,000 quid, which means there's a long tail. You know, the 90% of people on the workforce are actually earning a lot less than that. And people have a completely skewed perspective of what uh, a reasonable and average income is uh, for people in the UK. And so coming off the back of that is, you know, what essentially what we tend to want in the UK is we want Scandinavian public services on American levels of taxation. <laughs> and and that is an that's an impossible thing to to have. I mean, the reason that Scandinavian social democracies function is a they don't put the maintenance and preservation and growth of capital at the heart of their purpose. You know, they genuinely have a more collaborative collectivism um, around the way that you know they're not communist, but they are socially responsible capitalist systems, and so. Everyone there has a realistic expectation. They are happy to pay their higher rates of taxation, which are not actually dramatically higher than ours. But because of that, you know, they then know that they will have every opportunity to educate themselves for free to whatever standard that they choose or select they wish to educate themselves to. They also don't have to worry about when they get sick. So if you are able to educate yourself and not have to worry if you get ill, that's incredibly liberating for you in terms of the work you might then go and choose to do because you, you, all of the safety nets are in place. The flip side of that is, you know, the absolutely rampant dysfunctionality of America where it's sort of winner-takes-all mentality and you have literally tens of millions of people who don't have health care, you know, are falling out of the bottom of the system and can barely live uh, on the wages that they're able to obtain. And if you want to go to college, you've basically got to put yourself in decades of debt in order to pay for it. Now, we're somewhere in the middle and we're sort of floundering. And so in this particular moment in time, you know, I think it's really ripe for a renegotiation of this social contract and to say, it should be the right of everyone to educate themselves to the fullest of their abilities. We should be never be worried about us getting sick and being looked after. And, and in order to do that, and so that no one lets, gets left behind, because none of us are safe until all of us are safe, then we all have to put more into the system. And that means some people have to take less out. And that is where we have the problem, in that convincing the people who are very wealthy um, to think differently. Now, that's where actually quite a lot of the work Ed and I do um, is, is is concentrated on having those conversations. And the, and the problem you have is if you look at people's lives is that, that there are necessarily an autobiography. So um, if somebody's become very successful or very rich with the current system, then as far as they're concerned, it's a brilliant system and thoroughly meritocratic because, look, you know, I succeeded, so surely anybody can do it. And getting them to wake up and kind of see, well, maybe you uh, had some some privileges, or maybe you were lucky, or maybe you are brilliant. But that doesn't—that's not the way to think of the system. The system is, isn't great because you succeeded. Uh, you are an outlier. And actually, if you look at the economics of it, the more unequal a society, the worse it is for everybody in terms of you know mental health, public health profitability of businesses uh, anyway. I mean, if you think that 85% of the people who work for you are disengaged, okay, think of the mental health burden that has, the amount of time they, they're, they're off work, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, you know, making things more equal is a win-win for everybody, rich and poor 
alike. And that conversation has been bubbling under. I think that this crisis gives us an opportunity to bring it much more into the mainstream uh, because it's so obvious now that we have to have that conversation, especially as the world's governments have just got themselves massively into debt. Yeah, and people can't have it both ways, you know, because people want to have you know, this right to be a tax exile, to live offshore, to not pay your, your your personal tax. And this is the kind of the Branson dilemma incarnate where, you know, he'll he's happily been living off on his, his Caribbean island uh, and then is turning around for a 500 million pound mm. loan from the government in order to shore up his businesses when he's worth several billion pounds. Now, okay, he's fine. He hasn't got a, a bank account full of cash and he'd have to leverage that. But I think most people in their gut just know that that is fundamentally wrong. And if you want want to have the system bail you out or support you or help provide bridging finance to your failing business, then you should also be personally paying into and supporting that system. Uh, yeah. And I and I think that's the the kind of the skullduggery that's now being laid starkly bare in this in this new reality in which we find ourselves. It's like going, we're all in it together, people. We hear this as a kind of banal corporate mantra, but now the reality of being in it together is actually it, the shit is hitting the fan. Uh, and if you, if you want to have these bailouts and you want to have these these deals and support from the public sector and from the state and ultimately from everyone as taxpayers, then you know you are going to have to to make the right concessions and we're going to want to see you reinvent and remake your organizations and your businesses in a way that will serve the world that we need to see which is you know low carbon egalitarian and it actually looks after everyone in society i mean my big hope for this is that it will change because it has to the world is broken we know that and at some point we we know there are ways to fix it. And therefore, that's why I talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, as I talked about in episode one. You know, the bad is that most things are broken. The good is it's fixable. The ugly is it's going to be a very messy transition. But we will necessarily have to move from the old world to the new if there's going to be any business or any government or any prosperity or any education. So it's a, it's a long battle. And as Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice. It doesn't suddenly, you know, do a leap. It's, it's, it, but it's there, I think. And, and of course, it comes back to the, the education system. That's the other way we kind of unfuck ourselves is think about what education is for. And again, drawing an analogy with the, um, the, the Scandinavian countries. So if you asked the UK, what, what is the education system for? It's an interesting question because you, I don't know, I've been involved in some projects going around the country asking people what do you think education is for, and, and people don't quite know. Uh, and the, the answer that comes out probably most often is, well, it's there to prepare you for work, basically. It's there to prepare you to be a productive human being to c- contribute to the economy. If you go to Finland and say, what's education for? The Finnish government decided several years ago, you know, 20 years ago, that the purpose of the education system was to create happy Finns. We want to create people <laughs> who are happy. Okay, and what they also did was they started to pay teachers the same as they paid their doctors and their CEOs and you know other sort of high value professions like lawyers and whatever. And they said we value the happiness of our population above economics, and that's the narrative we now need to have. And of course, you know, the Finnish economy is doing is doing very well because they've got a bunch of people who are happier in their core, uh, and they have a social contract that they believe in, and therefore they have a much better relationship with their government and indeed their corporations. So these are broadly issues for governments and people in power i would say what what could you say to to listeners individuals on a sort of practical level who are unhappy in their work at the moment i mean we were all people i guess who at some point stepped away from what they were doing into a slightly more unknown um so i have this question that i use when i'm mentoring people and I use it with everybody, but but you know I, I mentor quite a number of young people, and, and I, this question is always very revealing. And the question I ask people is, if I gave you a billion pounds, what would you do? And what you're doing with that question? I mean, obviously, after you you know have a massive party, buy stacks of champagne, and go on a you know really nice holiday or whatever, what would you do then? And what what you're doing with that question is, is I'm a, I'm giving you an imaginary world where you and anybody you may choose to care about is freed of any possible financial worry here and into the future so what would you do with your time and people go when they think about that and they come up with all sorts of things you know well i'd go and work in animal rights or i'd like to you know work to improve taxation or i want to work in the caring industries or i'd like to be a comedian or whatever it is they say that that's what i'd really want to do so then you just go right well if that's what you want to do work out a way to go and do that anyway without the billion pounds and there are ways to do it so if you want to be a comedian find an open mic night and start 
if you want to be a nurse, then start studying to be a nurse, whatever it is. There are ways to do the thing you want to do. And a lot, a lot of people do. They say, I'll, I'll wait until that's in place or that's in place or I've got this much money, if I've saved up that or whatever, to start doing the thing I really want to do. And then they get trapped. And a lot of people that you know I, I work with, they've kind of built their own prison, their own prison of, of a set of thoughts. Say, I, can, I can't do the thing I want because I've got all these responsibilities or whatever over here, or I can't do it until I've got enough money, or I can't do it because it's too late, or I can't do it because uh, I feel I'm not good enough or whatever. Whereas actually the thing is to just go and start doing it. So you empower people, and at the same time, you've saved billions. <laughs> and this would have cost you a fortune. Thank God you've got a little yeah. rug to pull out from under their feet at the end. You're right, John. It is difficult to imagine what people can do as individuals when we're facing this big sort of systemic question mm. about the renegotiation of a flourishing social contract between you know individuals, employers, and, and the rest of society. But um, I think Part of this is actually about not regressing back to the familiar. We're like trying to resist the lure of pull of the world that has sort of fallen apart um, around us a little bit. Because what we tend to do in these moments of uncertainty is we feel insecure. And so we want to revert back and cling on to the, the remnants of what we had before. And I think perhaps the one thing we can do is actually attitudinal, is to say the unknown may hold more value than the known. Um, and this is where we need to get experimental. We need to be open about ideas like universal basic income. We need to be open about the ideas for perhaps a national citizen service. We need to be open about new models and experimental ways of finding meaningful work, rewarding each other uh, and working together for some kind of common purpose. And I think we've got to be very cautious about people who offer false promises about a, a back to normal type of recovery. This is going to be a bit of an adventure for all of us. And I think our attitudes need to be in line with that yeah and, and underlying all that i think there is this idea of generosity in that this the whole way we've been brought up to say you know it's a competition you win you succeed you're better than other people you get promoted and actually it's you know to stop seeing our colleagues and our neighbors as people we're competing against in a rat race to get you know to corral some more resources for our family and to start as we are, I think, in this crisis, seeing us all as part of the, the same story. And I like to say the human race is a co-inspirational network. We either go up together or we go down together. Mm -hmm. And another practical thing is on the back end of this, when things, when we're allowed back out on the streets, uh, I am predicting a massive social movement uh, in a, along the lines of Extinction Rebellion, which will be about the social contract and rebuilding it and um, articulating some demands for meaningful work, a fair share of the spoils, all that kind of stuff. Now, the thing to say about those kind of on-the-streets movements is there hasn't been a single one in history where 3.5% or more of the people got on the streets that didn't succeed. So when it comes time to get on the streets, we just need 3.5% of the population to do that, to demand this new thing, and over time we will get it. Right, I'll do some sums. I'll send out some emails. <laughs> um, we'll get the numbers presumably those people will be paid to protest and the protests need only last a maximum of just under three hours to be productive right um i think you're beginning to think a bit like a ceo there john oh no i've revealed <laughs> myself as a psychopath <laughs> um well some positivity at the end and that's good uh i i hope uh that that proves to be the case uh we end as ever with not negativity, but humor about the direction that we are choosing to head in uh, or a possible future for ourselves. And it's time for Pointless Futures. Yes. So this uh, week, John, we have in the wonders of the pandemic, we have a, a, an app which has come out from uh, agency We Are Social called SnapSafe, uh, which is a sort of Snapchat extension. Is like If you were wandering around with your face glued to your mobile phone uh, in a public place and, and concerned that you wouldn't be able to be maintaining your two meters social distancing uh, from people around you, then this app uses augmented reality to send you a message to alert you when you've got within two meters of somebody else so, yeah so this this is a kind of like use your fucking eyes type <laughs> of moment and take them off your screen uh, it's fantastically pointless future yeah i mean this is this is a, a creative agency that's which is called we are social that has you know is all about visual imagery and connecting to brands has, has just basically gone oh yeah 
yeah, we've forgotten that people have got eyes. And it's just, it's, it's literally insane. And they've put it on their website. It's like, oh, we're doing this wonderful thing. And, it, and again, it actually, going back to our earlier conversation, it kind of exposes that kind of like, there's a whole bunch of bullshit jobs out there. I mean, if the pinnacle of your ability as a creative agency, you know, which is supposed to be helping people communicate, is to come up with that kind of shit, you really need to question the whole sort of underlying ethos of your business, surely. Yeah. I see their website is quite grandiose in its use of terms like, you know, UN mandate and we were asked and all companies have been, you know, encouraged to think of ways of helping in the current situation. Are you suggesting that either they've gone insane and they genuinely believe that this app is the best way to do that or they know it's bullshit from the start and they just want some press? I think they've gone insane, but they don't know it. And that, I think, is actually an allegory for a lot of organizations. If you look at what's wrong with work, which is what we've been talking about throughout the, the, the episode, is that a lot of the ways that organizations think, if you looked at it from outside, you'd go, that's bonkers and mad. But to them, it seems normal. I mean, to them, they'd have probably come up with this idea in some brainstorm or thought shower or suggest fest or whatever you call it. And uh, thought, that's brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, we could do that. Brilliant. Let's do it. Uh, people are going to love it without actually being able to step up and go, no, it's shit. It's like it's like Mark. It's like the brainstorm we had about TV ideas, wasn't it? Around around <laughs> around radical behaviour change. Where this is one moment where Mark and I were involved with a TV production company that shall remain nameless, and we were trying to come up with ideas about um, uh, yeah, radicalising people for good, and the idea that you know you could get people involved in hugely powerful, purposeful um, campaigns and get them to transform their lives and the way they felt about themselves uh, and do positive things for the world and. We had this big convened brainstorm and we all sat around for half a day with the best and brightest of their creative team. And the two ideas that came out the end of this brainstorm were refugee dating and fat jihad. <laughs> Using jihadi training techniques. Because we talked about radicalization. So you, you look at how jihadis are, are radicalized. You can yeah. use those techniques to radicalize people for good. And they were like, great, fat yeah. jihad. We can use jihadi training techniques to help people get slim. I know. Mark and I walked out of the, this building at the end of the day, took one look at each other and both said simultaneously, we are never working with these people again. <laughs> okay. Well, in the interests of our ongoing relationship, I will make it clear that under no circumstances would I watch either of those programs. <laughs> um, but I would Sky Plus Fat Jihad in a fucking heartbeat. <laughs> well, uh, uh, that's the end of our time. Thank you both for your company. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can, of course, as we mentioned at the beginning, get in touch by email or tweet, and the details are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with a new show next week. Bye-bye.